You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Silas Brown, who reports on private credit for Bloomberg News in London. We're delighted to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. We're also very pleased to welcome Rena Kwok, who covers banks for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Singapore. Hi, James. Thanks for having me today. We'll be coming back to Rena shortly. There's lots of exciting stuff going on in the banking sector right now, so do stay with us. But first... Silas Brown with Bloomberg News, you've been digging deep into private credit. That's all we seem to be hearing about right now. The deals are getting bigger. A $5 billion private deal is not out of the question. All the big funds are involved. KKR, Blackstone, BlackRock, Allianz, Carlyle. And I, I get it from a borrower perspective. Rates have moved so much. Markets are so volatile. For some companies, it's the only option. But from an investor standpoint... This made a lot of sense a few years ago, I think, when returns were very hard to get. Yields on a lot of bonds were negative. But now you can get more than 5% on a high-quality U- U.S. corporate bond, 9% for junk bonds. Why do you have to sacrifice liquidity and transparency for so little extra return? Silas, let's start with a big question. Why is private credit so hot right now? Um, well, I think... I mean, firstly, that I, I think what what you said about um, private credit kind of losing its sheen is a very, um, I think, important question to be asking the funds, which I have been asking. Um, I think in terms of its hotness, um, look, I think a lot of people in the industry see this moment that they're in now as quite comparable to a moment that private equity saw a few decades ago and they expect some kind of explosion um, or a kind of persistent explosion in the asset class. Um, And so for those that are incumbent that had kind of seen this early, they're really pushing out and trying to build bigger and bigger funds. And then um, those that maybe were kind of caught flat-footed by the the rise of private credit are um, scrambling to, to, to create their own 
um, strategies or versions of um, versions of these funds. Um, in terms of uh, you know why investors are interested in the asset class, I think you make a very good point. Um, essentially, the pitch for uh, you know, the the pitch that fund managers would say to investors before was, hey, you know, you, you really can't find yield anywhere. So come into our illiquid and relatively opaque asset class and you might find, uh, you know, a, a kind of comparable spread. Um, now I think it's different. Um, but I think there's a few a few ways in. Firstly, the, the market has really matured and, and they do get access to very big deals. And they, they are, uh, you know, very clearly a um, uh, you, you know a, a competitive alternative to traditional forms of um, leverage and so I think that helps um, secondly it, I mean it's not just obviously the investment grades market has 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 gone up in yields but private credit has also gone up in yields and now direct lenders can kind of quite comfortably get between 10 to 12 percent which is you know at least sort of four percent higher than they than they could have got a few years ago, and so I think they'll be burnishing those credentials as well. And it's floating rate, right? It's floating rate. So they uh, they never tire from telling me and bragging that their instrument is actually quite by chance a floating rate instrument, um, and therefore is somewhat insulated from uh, the kind of uh, sudden immediate rate rises that we saw last year and this year. But to get that sort of return, you have to lock up your money for quite a long time. I mean, why would investors do that? And how long are we talking about? Um, okay, so I mean, it's, it's as much as 10 years. Um, so it is a very, very long time. Um, and I think for some institutions, that really doesn't matter. Um, for others, it does. Um, there are some kind of brain boxes in the market that are trying to come up with um, different uh, different sort of fund structures, more kind of evergreen style fund structures, which allow a degree of liquidity for institutions. Um, there's also, I don't know if you want to kind of delve into this, um, delve into this rabbit hole, but I mean, the, you know, there's also a big push um, to get retail investors on board and, and those structures also don't have, a, uh, uh, the, the, the lock isn't as bolted in those, in those structures as, um, as the close-ended funds. Retail, by which you mean my mother, the man on the street. I mean, what are, what are we talking about? Retail. I think retail is um, that's a very good clarif uh, clarification. Um, it depends, actually. I mean, but by and large, it is actually just you know rich people. Um, there are some structures which allow kind of you know um, people who are less wealthy to to access. But I think the 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 emphasis on inverted commas retail investors is an emphasis basically on uh, uh, wealthy individuals. I think that I think that's fair to say. So sort of high net worth, kind of high, um, sort of the if if there was a tiering system, I would say that they were interested in the tier below high net worth, kind of mass affluent people with disposable income, but um, you know w with quite a high degree of assets. You know, in, in relative terms. So the deals we're seeing right now. I mean, how big are they? What are they for? And why are they going private? Okay, so I mean, um, I think the biggest deals still emanate from the US. Um, there are a few kind of good examples of, of you know, multi-billion-dollar transactions coming from from the UK and Europe, um, but by and large, the real action is still occurring in the US. 
Um, they're normally for private equity backed businesses. Um, and I think that should be emphasized because um, uh, it's a statement of fact that is quite often um, glossed over by, <laughs> by direct lenders. Um, I think it, 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 you know, it's just, it, it's fair that the majority of flow, particularly the large cap flow, comes from private equity deal making. Um, and, you know, they're normally defensive, defensive-ish sectors like healthcare, software, these kind of non-cyclical businesses. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, 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 the level of large cap lending is growing just as the, the, um, just as the market is growing as well. But the scale would suggest that these are companies that, that, you know, they're not struggling, they're not distressed, they could have um, alternatives in other markets. Why would they go the private route? Um, well, I mean, because of because of all of the, the, the quirks that you can get in the private credit market. I think a lot of the large cap deals um, uh, come because you get, okay, so you get the, the, the famous things that you can get in private credit that you don't get in, say, the high yield or leveraged loan market is you don't, firstly, you don't need a rating. There's a kind of speed of execution and certainty of execution that is particularly prescient now just as the credit markets have tightened and the banks have got a bit more nervous about underwriting new LBOs. So that's very, very helpful. Secondly, it's more of a kind of relationship lending focus. If I'm a business that's trying to grow, I'm pursuing some very well-used term in direct lending, a kind of buy and build strategy where you're kind of acquiring other companies to kind of build um, into a bigger business. You can get a syndicate of lenders with say you know say like Aries or Blackstone or some of the some of the large heavyweight heavyweight lenders and every time you need a new uh, you need financing for a new acquisition you can kind of tap tap your kind of syndicate of, of relationship lenders and I think it's very effective and very useful for private equity firms rather than trying to tap the high yield and leverage loan market in which, you know, certainly in the US, it's quite hard to do under $500 million. In in Europe, it's slightly less. But I mean, still, you have to kind of issue a considerable amount to kind of guarantee that li- the liquidity that those investors like. And so I think, I think um, it, it's a persuasive pitch, particularly for um, a lot of private equity firms that have regular debt needs um, and kind of like, I, I think, like the relationship aspect of the market. And just to be clear, so what we're talking about when we talk, say, private credit, that's just um, a borrower, a company going to a one institution, is it? And and privately, nego- as, as I would go into the bank and get a mortgage, that sort of thing? Well, I think private credit is a bit of a smorgasbord of different a- uh, of different asset classes. And so private credit can be anything from distressed special situations very kind of funky debt financing to more mainstream direct lending which is i think what, what most of the column inches are about i mean the most of them are about like an you know aries senior lending unitranche lending funds um and in those instances they are they can be bilateral a lot of the lower mid market is is bilateral these large cap deals can be syndicates of up to 20 lenders um, nowadays, and particularly at the moment, I think on the on the number of lenders point, um, I think private equity firms and businesses, having been somewhat spooked last year by lenders 
tapping out or not wanting to commit more debts have tried to extend the pool of lenders that they have a relationship with um, in order to avoid a situation where they need financing for an acquisition and hey presto the lender says oh I'm actually too exposed to your to your credit already. Okay. So all this lending in the shadows, I mean, I have to ask, you know, there's no transparency, no visibility. We can't see where or how this stuff is trading. Aren't we just setting ourselves up for a big fall here? Um, This is the real bugbear of the market. Um, Transparency. I mean, I think, firstly, it's fair to the industry to say there's quite a lot of transparency for the investors in these funds. Um, they see the deals and they you know they have a very constant relationship with the with the funds and likewise the fund managers have a, you know a, I think they would argue a closer relationship to the borrower than you would get in the in the in the high yield and leverage loan markets um, but for us um, kind of layman style spectators as I find myself it is frustrating <laughs> that there's a degree of um, secrecy to it Um I think in terms of I, I guess I guess the kind of um the uh, uh what's beneath what's hidden beneath your question about the hidden nature of the market is about regulation and about kind of do, do does does the markets do the markets need to know more about this very growing asset class and I think um from what I can tell uh you know, there's a degree of um, at least interest among regulators to kind of look at the asset class and learn more about it. Um, whether or not that comes with any kind of tangible results from a regulatory perspective, I mean, is yet to be seen. Um, but I do think if they kind of pursue this, as as we said earlier, pursue this kind of targeting of, uh, of, of kind of wealthy people to get into the asset class, I mean, that that may well prompt more. I'm more concerned, though, about the level of distress in this market, you know, given that we're seeing that in the public markets, you know, we've seen a big increase in bankruptcies in the US, we've seen a lot more defaults, we're seeing a lot more stress in the system as rates have increased dramatically, and also the economy slows. So companies are struggling. Surely that's the same, if not worse, in private credit. Well, this is one of the joys about covering this market is that you can kind of, I think, quite fairly create sort of bull and bear cases for each 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 kind of theme thrown your way. I would say the the strong case for the market in terms of re- distress and restructuring is as we mentioned earlier there are fewer lenders involved in these deals that have you know regular contact with the borrowers and they're all there pursuing the same interest which is effectively the preservation of their capital. I think where you get more um kind of uh combative relationships between lenders and sponsors and lenders and lenders in the public markets is when you get investors there that are kind of pursuing their own self-interest at the, you know at the expense of at the expense of others there's a degree of protection for the private credit market in that however obviously if there is distress in the market you can't trade out of these positions with any degree of frequency um, uh, that you could that you could do in other markets so i think if you do find yourself with a number of distressed assets, that is a challenge, and it's you know, you know, it's why a lot of these firms have been hiring restructuring professionals um, because they realise that they basically have to do this in house. Um, so I think it's a mixed picture. We haven't seen a kind of wave of distress yet. Um, again, as you have skillfully pointed out, the the market is quite hidden. 
Um, we are asking the questions on an almost daily basis to make sure we're on top of this. At the moment, we haven't, our reporting doesn't suggest that there's a wave of restructuring going on at the moment. But obviously, we are in the early stages of, 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 of a potential economic slowdown. And I, I think the distress that would occur may kind of occur um, later down the line. And if there is a default, how would we even know, given that, you know, the lender and the borrower, they're, they're so aligned, you know, you can just extend, you can amend, you can do all sorts of things to prevent any event of default? Yes, I, but I mean, yeah, to, to look on that kind of positively, you could argue that that's probably, that may well present a better outcome for all, in that, that you can kind of be a bit more ad hoc with, you can relax terms, you can take some of the interest into into some form of pick note or, or you know you can you can be a bit more flexible with the borrower in order to kind of um to to promote the longevity of the business but you're right i mean they often say look at our low default rates I mean, that really doesn't show the full picture particularly when the um credit terms have eroded to such an extent that it's very hard to trigger in any market and as we've seen in the US, this often sustains a whole wave of what we've called zombie companies that uh, roam yes. and create havoc throughout the system. But um, we're seeing those starting to die in the US. But before we talk to um, Rena Kwok at Bloomberg, Bloomberg Intelligence, what's the next big thing to watch, Silas? What what do we expect? How does, how does this market go? Where does it go from here? Okay, so I think the main things to watch are, I mean, the, the where Bloomberg is interested in the market is where... Um, the market intersects with traditional forms of leverage finance. So it's private credit versus the banks in terms of underwriting. It's that that kind of large scale lending and the big beasts of the market and how do they um, how do they how do they react? I think distress is an interesting area um, which we are keeping uh, keeping on top of. I think the pursuit of larger and larger deals is very interesting. Um, new entrants to the market. We recently reported that SoftBank was at least flirting with the prospect of uh, becoming uh, becoming a lender, a kind of effectively a private lender. Um, and then you know you hear you hear more and more of these larger institutions that um, that are kind of trying to gain footholds in the market, including banks and the banks asset management's division. So we're we're also tre- uh, keeping on track of that. I do think regulation is something um, that that at least the market is is somewhat talking about um i don't know what would prompt regulation but i mean that's something that we're that we're keeping in uh keeping it keeping in touch with and I, then i think also just st- structural innovations i mean trying to um uh you know when credit markets have got tight it has often prompted private credit funds and to their credit banks as well to create forms of funky flexible financing and so for the for the real diehard uh supporters of the credit markets i think that's what we're we're um trying to kind of offer up in terms of reporting so it's a market that's here to stay it's maturing it's a sort of coming of age moment right now you think i th- i think so but i mean um i dread to think if it if it doesn't come of age then i'll be held to this um held to the standard but i i don't i don't see any reason why the market won't continue to grow just as other more mature private markets such as private equity or even less mature markets are growing. I mean, I think it's part of a wave towards uh, towards private markets that is beyond private credit itself. Great stuff. Silas Brown from Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Read all of Silas's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. 
Moving on to another big topic. As I mentioned earlier, we're very fortunate to have with us Rena Kwok, who looks at banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. I know you have a lot to say about South Korea, Rena, but before we get to that, you cover so much more. And I just wanted to ask, you know, you have a broad view of the Asia banking sector. In, in, in big, big picture terms, banks have had a very rough few months. Credit Suisse and a bunch of smaller U.S. banks went down. How did that affect Asian financial institutions, Rena? And, and what's the fallout? Is everything back to normal now? Thanks, James. Now, if we take a look at the Asian uh, financials, uh, most of the banks that cover in the ASEAN region, India, and even bits uh, of Korea, most of their dollar bonds have actually uh, recovered, uh, I would say, pre, um, say pre-credit suite levels. And I think the reason why is that, you know, part of the major lenders that we cover, their credit fundamentals remain fairly resilient, uh, at least for the ASEAN banks, you know, in this region. Um, we see relatively healthy liquidity profile. Um, asset quality remains resilient, and uh, most of the major lenders here have um, ample capital reserves to cushion uh, the credit losses they are potentially going to surface in their books. So we are mostly quite comfortable with the lenders in this region. Okay, great. So, but you you did sort of hone in on uh, South Korea. Um, I'm interested in your view. On, uh, what's the outlook there? It's a big economy. It's an important economy. What's the outlook for South Korea's financial sector this year? We actually believe that the resilience of the South Korean financial sector this year could be undermined by the weakness in some of the non-bank financial institutions due to the default fears related to their large real estate project financing exposures as well as the increased liquidity risk amid their macro uncertainties and the elevated interest rates. So why why does South Korea particularly suffer from that? Is there, is there something unique to South Korea's economy that's different to other Asian economies? Yes, I think uh, if we look across, you know, the more, uh, say, the developed markets in Asia, South Korea economy is uh, facing multiple headwinds. One is the elevated household debt that we see in the economy. Uh, the second one, which I pointed out earlier, is actually the rising uh, fears about the large real estate project financing exposures that are assisted in some of the non-bank institutions where they actually finance more of the riskier kind of uh, projects, uh, though of a smaller quantum. And I think the other actually um, headwinds that we see in South Korea uh, economy is that uh, the slowing growth uh, is going to hurt the economy as well. So the South Korea economy is facing multiple headwinds this year, and that could actually uh, make um, the operating environment for the banks uh, in the country a bit more challenging. Which banks are we talking about? Yeah, so we are pretty comfortable with most of the big four South Korean banks, but I think one of the risks to watch out for, uh, at least for the South Korean financial sector is, you know, we mentioned about the mortgages, the elevated household debt. So in terms of household debt levels, we think that the mortgages and the credit card default this year could be manageable for most of the banks as, you know, the income as well as employment conditions remain fairly resilient despite the rising interest rates, growth fears. But the non-bank financial institution project financing exposures could be a bigger area of risk. And like I mentioned, they tend to be non-residential riskier asset and smaller quantum. And this is despite the government measures to avoid a hard lending in the property sector. So on the consumer side, we expect them to default on their mortgages, do we? Now, I think in terms of mortgages before, they look manageable, like because you know the employment still remains healthy. Then, if I was to just put things into context, uh, the unemployment rate in South Korea in fourth quarter 2022 was about 2.9%, and the average gross national income was about 3% higher uh, versus a year ago. 
and mortgages risk might also be offset by the macroprudential measures to avoid um, a hard landing of the property market and most of the major banks ample provisions. Now, if we take a look at what we call the chance um home deposits, direct risk exposures for the banks could be minor as well as the Korea Housing Finance offers guarantee up to 90% of chance home uh, loans uh, value. But for people who don't buy insurance with chance guarantees, a sharp drop in the chance price is a risk to watch. Okay. But see, as, as we've talked about, rates are high. Households have too much debt. But but still, we don't expect a big wave of defaults through through mortgages then? Yes, as as long as the employment conditions remain healthy, which we believe will be the case, unlikely to see a start, uh, I'll say a sharp surge this year. Okay, so from a credit investor's standpoint or from you know someone in the market, how does that affect um, the, the bonds or you know is there a lot of debt outstanding at the South Korean banks? Yes, so I think if we take a look at the big four uh, Korean banks, uh, looking at the dollar tier two, Mostly, uh, they are at you know option adjusted spread about 170 to 220 bits, and they trade outside similarly rated Singapore banks, but perhaps not wide enough to reflect the rating gaps as well as the greater asset quality pressures that we are seeing in the near term. Now, we believe that a big four Korean banks dollar tier twos could actually tighten versus the local regional banks, but widen versus similarly rated Singapore lenders in the near term, and bond technicals would also less support Korean banks dollar tier two given their higher spread volatility versus the Singapore bank bonds. Do we expect more issuance? Yeah, so if we take a look into the big four financial groups at the holding company level, we believe that their 81 issuance could fall about $2 billion this year as major M&A looks unlikely in the near term amid the macro headwinds and given that most of these big four financial groups, they already have well-diversified business. Now, this lender's 81 issuance in the recent years, which were mostly in one, they were meant more to lower what we call the double leverage ratios rather than raising capital. And the big four financial groups might maintain the leverage ratios well below 130% in the next few years, backed by steady upstream of dividends from the core subsidiaries. The group efforts to strengthen the capital buffers with the targeted group core equity tier one capital ratio at 12 to 13.5%. This could limit the need for 81's issuance fees. So the AC1 market over there continues to be uh, thriving and not affected by what happened at Credit Suisse? I think definitely, you know, post-Credit Suisse uh, uh, wipeout, you know, uh, definitely investors are getting more uh, concerned and uh, will price in the extra risk. So definitely financing a new AT1 will be more expensive for issuers going forward. Uh, but at least for the big four South Korean uh, banks, uh, they remain well capitalized. So that actually limits uh, the need for AT1 issuance. Okay, so you sound pretty um, optimistic overall, Rena. But you know, it's a credit show. I'm always worried about stuff. What 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 are the risks out there? So um, you know, I would say it's a uh, mixed bag in South Korean financial sector. In terms of the major banks, we are comfortable with them. But you know, where are the risks that we see? They are actually sitting in the non-banks uh, in South Korean financial sector. And one of the risks I'll highlight is actually the rising liquidity risk that we see for South Korean non-banks. And we actually believe that the liquidity risk could rise at Korean non-banks, especially the security companies, credit specialized financial companies, as well as mutual saving banks uh, amid the uh, record headwinds. Now, if we take a look at third quarter 2022, 
while the liquidity coverage ratio remained well above the regulatory hurdles for most of the non-banks, their ratios have fallen sharply versus 2019 levels, and particularly securities companies as well as credit specialized financial companies, they are vulnerable to market treaters given their heavy reliance on short-term wholesale funding. And mutual saving banks, it's a non-bank, uh, might actually face rising risk of deposit outflow in the second half, and this is due to the lower deposit rate differentials with the major banks and the possible flight to quality given concern about their project financing exposures if a downturn happens. So you'll be keeping us updated on those, will you, as they happen? Definitely. Great. Thank you so much, Rena Quark of Bloomberg, Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out and hope to see you soon, Rena. Likewise, thanks for having me, James. Thanks again also to Silas Brown from Bloomberg News. Read all of his great private credit scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Thank you. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.